Please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. Uh, You can find that on page 8 of the Bibles uh, in the pews behind you. Starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in to lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, so that you may go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant with their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called him ben and he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This can take a seat. As we get started, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, we come into this place this morning and our lives are surrounded with uh, oftentimes it seems like our lives are surrounded with destruction, with pain. We think of those uh, in Ukraine right now, who are literally surrounded with those things. We pray for them. We pray especially for those civilians who are caught in the crossfire, who are uh, taking um, loss. And who likely are feeling pretty um, anxious and desperate. Lord, we pray that in the midst of a terrible situation, that your word would break through, that your news, your good news would um, be a rock for your people there, and that you would be a refuge. We pray that those who do not know you uh, would turn to you, and that you would uh, protect your people and preserve them. Lord, for us, as we consider uh, events like that around the world, and, and as we consider the difficulties around our own lives, maybe more in greater proximity to us, I pray that we would turn to you and trust you. 
pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you've never read the book, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, I absolutely insist that you pick it up and read it. And if you have any time outside of reading the Bible, right, to read something, then read that book if you've never read it. Because I think it's incredibly practical and helpful for every Christian. The story, if you don't know, it follows a man. His name is Christian. As he travels from the city of destruction to the city of God, the celestial city. And in an allegorical fashion, it illustrates well all the difficulties and struggles that we face in life as Christ's followers. And in one scene, I want to share with you particularly, in one scene, Christian is accompanied by a man on his journey by a man named Hopeful. And as they're traveling together, they come to a plane, it says, that is called Ease. And the author tells us, the narrator tells us, that this is a brief and rare landscape. Is that not true, Christians? Ease is a brief and rare landscape sometimes. And as they pass through this plain of ease, a man comes along named Demas. And Demas calls to them and encourages them to turn off the path that they're on, the path to the celestial city, to the city of God, and to briefly investigate the wonders of this nearby silver mine. Hopeful, it's curious. He wonders. They shouldn't stop, like Demas says. But Christian is resolute. It's said, he says, it's not clear what happens to those who listen to Demas, to those who turn off the path and venture to investigate the silver mine. It's unknown whether they truly find wealth or if some if it's true that what some have said, that as they approach the ground near, it becomes unstable and the ground collapses beneath them and they fall to their doom. Either way, Christian says, those people are never seen on the path again. Christian's arguments win out and they move on from Demas. And right after they move on from Demas, they come to a monument. And at first, they're not sure what this monument is. And as they look closely, they notice this monument's in the shape of a woman. What is this? And they kind of dust it off, it says. And on top of it is a plaque, and it simply says, Remember Lot's wife. At that moment, that hopeful realizes just how close he was to danger. And how thankful he is for Christian's fellowship. You see, last week we looked at God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And we saw Lot's hesitancy to leave and God's mercy in rescuing him. But we also saw that Lot's wife looked back. 
She turned back and though she had been saved from destruction, as she's drawn back, she is caught up in the judgment of the valley. The draw of the city, the draw of the ease of city life, and also the draw of its wickedness, calls her back and she dies. This morning, we will see that this pole, it's not completely gone from Lot's family. And it's going to serve as a warning to us. And this is the bottom line that I want you to walk away with this morning. This is what I hope you get. Don't return to that from which you have been rescued. Christian, do not return to that from which you have been rescued. And we're going to look at this in two parts. First, the first part I'm calling a cautionary tale. And I want to break down this brief story and give us a few cautions from it. And then I want to consider a little bit how this story that seems, uh, seems almost out of place, seems almost like it, how does this fit in? I want, I want to share a little bit about how this story fits into the overall story that the Bible is telling. And I want to call that a hopeless story with a question mark. All right. A cautionary tale. Caution number one. The degree to which you are trusting in the things of the world is the degree to which you are not trusting in God. We talk about trust in an ultimate sense. You cannot trust in two things ultimately at the same time. Either you will be trusting in God or you will be trusting in the things of this world, including yourself. So the story goes like this. Lot, he goes up out of Zoar, right? Now, and, and he goes to live in the hills. Now, if you remember from last week, the hills were actually where the angels had commanded him to go in the first place. And he was like, no, I can't go up there. I'll be, I'll be destroyed before I get there, even though they had told him he would not be, that they would not, he would not get caught up in God's judgment, and yet he did not believe them. And he asked, can I go to this little city, this little city, Zoar? And they say, okay, we'll grant you that. And that's where he went. But yet again, we see him not trusting. After seeing the destruction of the nearby cities, Nearer, by the way, because he did not go where the angels originally told him to go. Am I right? This little city is actually closer to the destruction of the valley. So having seen that, now he suddenly doesn't trust that he's safe there either. He goes to the hills. See, all of Genesis... It's about how God keeps his promises. Even in the face of all the troubles, even in the face of all the sins of the world, time and again, the challenge is this. Will you trust your own judgment about things or will you trust God's word? 
Remember, this is the same Lot who moved close to the city because he trusted in his own optics about what land was most fertile rather than recognizing how wicked the city was when he knew, when it was uh, well-known, its wickedness. His trust, it would seem, like the people of Babel, was in human ingenuity and the convenience of city life and not in God. And where does all of this lack of trust in God and trust in the things of the world instead land him? Well, it lands him living in a cave with his daughters. This uber-wealthy man has been reduced to the life of a refugee. And even though he had so many possessions that he couldn't, they were too, too many to, to fit in the land, right? Now, all of his, him and all of his things can fit in a cave. You may feel sorry for him at this moment. But what I want you to do instead is to take heed. That's the result of trusting the world, not God. Think you can get everything, and in a moment, you'll lose it all. But the story gets worse, believe it or not. It gets worse because... His daughters refuse to trust as well, and they hatch a most unthinkable plan. Now, listen, we live in an unparalleled time, I think, where we can hear uh, news uh, about uh, anything happening anywhere in the world, the worst things that are happening anywhere in the world almost immediately. And we're inundated with stories about, you know, volcanoes and tsunamis in the South Pacific or war in Europe or global pandemics or bad actors in D.C., etc., etc., etc. And all of it can feel extremely overwhelming, not to mention the troubles that are more immediate in our life, right? And, and listen, while being informed, I think, can be good, I wonder if all of that has a negative side effect. See, I think sometimes we spend a disproportionate amount of time and energy and emotion on issues of which we bear no responsibility instead of spending time and energy and emotion or whatever on, on issues in which we do bear responsibility. And I think that's part of what Lot gets caught up in here, in Lot's desperation about the world around him and in his concern for his own self-preservation. He fails the basic responsibility he has to his daughters. He's so concerned about the destruction over there in which God has told him, actually, you'll, I'll preserve you from that. And yet he's so wrapped up in that and concerned about that that he forgets his responsibility to his daughters right here. What we're going to see is that Lot's failure is compounded by this wicked plan of his daughter's. They're victims, in a sense, of their father's sin. That's true. 
But that is no justification for the wickedness they're about to perform. They fail to trust God as well. And here's my second caution to you from this. When wickedness is left unchecked, the unthinkable becomes reasonable. When wickedness is left unchecked, the unthinkable becomes reasonable. The firstborn daughter hatches this plan. And and this first statement of verse 31, it's telling because it gives us a glimpse into her mindset and her motivations for it. It says, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. A few things I want you to take note of here. Their concern They're concerned that their father is old. Well, well, why are they concerned about that? The next phrase tells us they're looking for a man to come into them. And that's a respectable way, I suppose, of saying we'd like to get married and have some babies. Remember, their husbands-to-be wouldn't leave the city, and they were destroyed. It would have been Lot's duty to find them a husband, but he's afraid, and he's isolated them, and he's isolated himself. And even though, presumably, there would have been potential suitors in the little city that they were in, or he could have gone back to Abraham's household, and I wonder if he had gone to the hills originally, if he might not have found Abraham standing there overlooking the destruction that morning. Lot is old and he dies. They've got no husband. They've got no son. They've got, they would have no father. Then what will these daughters do? Who will take care of them? And so consider also the, the phrase, there is not a man on earth. Well, we know, they know that's not true. We know from the story that they were in Zoar after the destruction was started and finished that there were people there, they know, they know everyone in the world is not dead. Unless, unless their father's irrational fear has led them to believe that somehow the rest of the world is destroyed. Either way, their reaction is over the top and irrational And Lot once again lets them down. But the final phrase that I want you to see in this that I I think is the most telling of all and makes this whole thing clear. It says, after the manner of all the earth. We would like a, a man to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, this phrase, I believe, is intended to be a direct contrast to Genesis 18, 19. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, before all of this story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah happened, after Abraham and his descendants are set apart by God and they're given this covenant with circumcision and the whole thing, God explains that what he's going to do in his judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to teach Abraham something so that he can teach his children and his children's children and so on. And then it says this, in Genesis 18, 19, quote, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord 
by doing righteousness and justice. To keep the way of the Lord. These daughters of Lot, the way that they're operating is not the way of the Lord in righteousness and justice. It is after the manner of all the earth. And in fact, that is what they desire. They desire to go after the manner of all the earth rather than after the way of the Lord. And let me tell you, there are only two ways you can go. Either after the way of the Lord or after the manner of all the earth. There is no third option. It will be one or the other every time. And so the plan they hatch is this. Let's get our father really, really drunk, and let's get pregnant by him. So that's what they do. The firstborn daughter one night, and it works. It works so well that Lot doesn't even remember or realize that any of it's happened. And so the second night, the secondborn does the same thing. And most of us hear this and we think, this is crazy, right? Disturbing. Disgusting. How in the world? My point is that when wickedness is left unchecked, the unthinkable becomes reasonable. While we may find this disturbing, we ought to pause and think. We ought to pause and think about the things in our own life, in our own world. The things that we have left unchecked that seems small. And over time, things that were once unthinkable now seem reasonable to us. We have to think about that in our own culture. We have to think about that in our own lives. We aren't immune to this kind of thing. It's very easy being detached from this story and looking at it and thinking, well, that's so wild that we become blind to the things in our own life. Two ways to check that wickedness. First, beware of influences. Be aware of influences. Be aware of the influences in your life. Have you noticed, I don't know if you've ever seen this, especially those of you who have kids, or maybe you've seen this in your own life, uh, that when they're around a particular person, they, a particular friend for a while, and then they come home and, and you see them talking a little bit like that person or acting a little bit like that friend, right? And, and you're going, well, is this my kid or is this their kid that, I, that came home, you know? There's a way in which we rub off on each other. And, and that's not all bad necessarily. I mean, it can be. It depends on who's rubbing off on you, right? That can be a Trojan horse for Satan to sneak sin into our lives under the guise of fitting in with others. But this doesn't mean that we cut ourselves off from the world. It just means we need to pay attention to the influences 
around us and check them against God's word. In fact, I would say it, this story also gives us one other way of checking wickedness in our lives, and that is to beware of isolation. So not only be aware of your influences, but beware of isolation. Because while influences can sometimes be bad, isolation is always bad. Isolation is never a good thing. And men, I want to particularly speak to you because I think we fall into this trap more than females do. We have a higher tendency to isolate ourselves for whatever reason. And that's not good for you. How critical was it in the pilgrim's progress that Christian was there with Hopeful? Because otherwise Hopeful would have perished. And one of Satan's favorite tactics, like I said, especially against men, is isolation. While, while I wonder if Lot thought to himself, man, I've made these decisions I made these decisions to move next to Sodom. I made this decision to move into Sodom. I didn't speak out against the, the wickedness in the city when I could have until it was too late. And, my, and I was on top of the world, and, and now I'm a failure. And I can't face the shame of that. And so I'm going to go live in a cave. I've already lost so much. I can't stand to lose anything else, so I'm just going to hole up for a while. And that's Satan's tactic against us. How wonderful would it have been if he had ran to the hills that morning and ran into Abraham and had his uncle to guide him through the next stage of his life. His daughters would have found husbands in a household set apart for God. He would have had community to reassure him of God's promises to him. But instead, he isolates himself. Let me tell you, beware of isolation. It never leads to anything good. And so this story is a cautionary tale, but is it a hopeless story? I want to look at this from two different angles. Look back in the Bible a little bit, and then I want to look forward in the Bible a little bit. The first part is the bad news. I call it the seed of sin continues. See, the greater context helps us to understand two additional realities. First, we got to go back to Genesis 3.15. There we see two offspring described. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You remember this is God speaking to the serpent after the first sin. 
And when we were back there, if you remember, if you were here during that part of our, our sermon series, right, when we were back there, we talked about how there were two lines that were being clearly marked out, this line of the seed of sin and this, uh, the offspring of the serpent and this chosen line of promise, the offspring of the woman. And these two lines are, are set out from Genesis 3, and they're going to they're gonna collide once more in the future. And and so after Adam and the judgment in the garden, we have Cain continuing the line of, of sin. We have Seth continuing the chosen line. And then we can jump forward uh, to Noah and we consider the comparisons between Lot and Sodom and Noah and the flood, right? The same phrase is used to describe the wickedness of the people and they're being swept away in judgment. Both are righteous men and, and, and their families are being saved, Right? Even in this epilogue, there are similarities to the epilogue of Noah, right? Because he gets drunk just like Lot does. His kids dishonor him, or one of his kids dishonors him. But then there's differences. Noah realizes what's happened. Lot was so drunk that he doesn't. Noah's youngest son sins against him, but the older sons correct the heir, right? And honor their father. Whereas here, the oldest daughter hatches the plan and the youngest daughter goes along with it. And the question is, why these stories in either situation? Why this story about Noah getting drunk and, and his son sinning against him uh, uh, after the flood? Why the story about Lot and his daughters after the judgment on Sodom. And I think the point is to show us that even after these judgments, the seed of sin continues. That while God has judged the world and judged it rightly, he hasn't judged it fully. It didn't do the job. There's something else to look forward to. And this would have been apparent to the original audience, the people of Israel, nearing the promised land as they're reading this. The two grandsons of Lot, right, become the Moabites and the Ammonites. And Deuteronomy 2 tells us the story that, that as they're walking along these people groups, they were afraid of the Israelites and tensions were high. And God reminds them that the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites are not for the people of Israel. That they were promised to the descendants of Lot. And it must have been difficult as they needed to pass through these lands to get to where they were going. And I'm sure the Israelites are feeling as if the Moabites and the Ammonites might close in on them. But God warns them, don't provoke them. Be very careful. If you start a fight with them, they'll, you won't beat them. Tension between the chosen seed and the seed of sin remains. Adam wasn't the answer. Noah wasn't the answer. Abraham wasn't the answer. The people of Israel couldn't eradicate the wickedness around them. What then is this just hopeless? And that's where we turn to the offspring of promise. And here's what's interesting. You know, we're left thinking that there are these two streams. Abraham's descendants, which leads to Jesus and Lot's descendants, these two people groups who represent the rest of the world that are literally born in iniquity, right? They're conceived in iniquity. 
They come from legendary wickedness. But then as we're reading through the story of the Bible, we come to the story of Ruth. I don't know if you remember the story of Ruth. Elimelech and Naomi are Israelites. And there's a famine in the land, and so they pack up and they move where? They move to Moabite territory. They move to the land of the firstborn child of Lot and his daughter. And Elimelech dies, and her and Naomi's two sons, they marry Moabite women, but then they both die. And Naomi is left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, and that's it. And it makes you think, wow, like another person who is left with their two daughters. And the famine ends, and Naomi decides to move back to the promised land, and she encourages her daughters-in-law, look, go back to your land, find a husband. I can't have more sons for you. I can't provide for you. I can't take care of you. I'm going to go back to my people. You go back to your people, and you'll be taken care of there. And she encourages them to do so. And again, there's similarities in differences. Lot could have found husbands, but didn't. Naomi, recognizing that she can't, recognizing their need, encourages them to do what would be beneficial to them and not to her. But Ruth, Ruth decides to stick with Naomi. Famously, she says, Naomi, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And the mother the mother of all Moabites doesn't trust in the God she ought to know, the God who just rescued her from Sodom, and she hatches a plan to dishonor her father in self-preservation. But Ruth, the daughter of the Moabites, decides to turn to God, even though she ought not know him, and honors her mother-in-law despite the danger that it puts herself in. She chooses the way of the Lord over the manor, of all the earth. And what's the result? Do you remember? Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David and part of the lineage of Jesus himself. A Moabite. Of a line born, conceived in iniquity, part of the line of Jesus Christ. That's what God does. What once was part of a wicked world becomes set apart by God. Lot's daughters were rescued from the judgment of the wickedness of Sodom, but promptly returned to that wickedness. Through faith, Ruth refuses to return to Moab, but seeks obedience, trusting God. And God rescues her life and so much more. So much more. And this is foreshadowing, friends, of what is fully revealed in that offspring, Jesus. Because Christ's life, death, and resurrection 
Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, rebel sinners like us, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done in the past, if we would turn to God and to the promise of Christ, God adopts us into his, as his own and makes us sons and daughters. God preserves us and keeps us and he, he rescues us for good. Don't return to that from which you've been rescued. Listen, there are some of you here who are not yet Christians. I want you to know. I want you to know you live in a city of destruction. And right now as it stands, you will be judged accordingly. But God can rescue you. He can rescue you. If you would turn to him, he can bring you out. Jesus says this. In Luke 17, he says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You lose your life to Christ and entrust it to him. He can rescue you. My focus this morning really is to you Christians. I want to give you an encouragement, a final encouragement and a final warning. Encouragement is this. You don't have to live like Lot. You don't have to live like Lot. I want you to know that. You don't have to live like Lot. You know that you've been rescued from wickedness. And because of that, you know the reality of God's judgment on that wickedness. But, but for some of you, that leaves you in a constant state of fear and shame because of what was because of what you did back there. And you're ashamed of the cost of your past wickedness on those you, you love. And you're constantly wondering if God's judgment might still find you out. You think, well, that's just the price that I have to pay for the mistakes that I made back there. But listen, Jesus paid the price. Romans 8 says there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All those lies of Satan, all they do is keep you from stepping into and fulfilling the responsibilities and duties that God has given you right now. Remember Lot's wife. Will you, like Lot, attempt to preserve what life you have left, or will you trust it to God, the God who rescued you, and step forward in obedience? Who you were then, in the city of destruction is not who you are now. But there's also a warning. Don't be like Lot's daughters. They were rescued from the heart of Sodom, but Sodom remained in their heart. Like Christian and hopeful, don't turn away from the path to whatever silver mine of things you think you need, but assume that God 
can't or won't provide, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Those things, they aren't worth it. They aren't worth it. That's where you are saved from. Don't give yourself back to them. Don't return to that from which you are rescued. Let me pray.